Legacy is about who before what. On May 3rd, 2010, I turned 22 years old. And most of you guys who are above 22 realize that's not really a birthday you celebrate, right? 22 is not something special unless you're like Taylor Swift and she's like, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't feeling 22, okay? 22 was just an average day for me, but actually, no. Matter of fact, when I turned 22, that birthday, it was actually a birthday I would never forget. You know why? My mentor, my pastor threw me the worst birthday party ever. He took me to a funeral on my birthday, right? Way to put the fun in funeral, right? And so I, I, I was like, he, he, took to me, he took me to the funeral. Let me, let me give you some backstory. Uh, when I was younger, I say that more often when, I, when you work with kids and students because I feel like I'm getting older, just trying to dress younger. Uh, when, when I was younger, I, I, I knew I was called into to ministry. I knew I was called in, to serve students. And uh, I remember for a while, I ran away from that calling. Like, I, I was like, I don't want to do this. Like, those teenagers are crazy, you know? And I, and I was like, I, I, I don't know if this is for me. And even as I started to, like, develop that, that desire to work with students, I had some unfortunate people in my life that really discouraged me from going into ministry. So I was like, I'm, I'm not about to have that until I met my mentor. He was a student pastor here in San Antonio at the time. His name was Derek Johnson. Now, Derek Johnson didn't give me any cool advice about going into ministry. He didn't give me any cliche quotes. He didn't say, hey, you're going to make a lot of money in ministry, because that would have been a lie, right? He, he didn't give me, he didn't try to persuade me. Simply what Derek Johnson did for me is he, he took me under his wing. See, for two years, Derek poured his life into my life. Legacy is about who before what. So on the week, on the week of my birthday, he calls me up. He's like, hey, what's up, Chocolate Bear? What's up, bro? He goes, hey, I want you to come with me this Friday to a funeral. I'm performing it. I was like, performing it? Is it a trick? I don't know. Uh, you know, he's like, I'm performing a, a, a funeral. I want you to be here, which was, goes to show you what his life was like in mine. He never told me about ministry. He always showed me ministry. And so I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I, of course I want to be there. And immediately I get off the phone. I look at my calendar. I look at my calendar. Oh, it's this Friday. Oh, it's my birthday. But here's the reality. I so, I so longed to, to learn. I so wanted to be and spend time with Derek that I didn't care. I was like, I'm not going to cancel. I don't care if it's my birthday. I just won't tell him. Okay? And so legacy is about who before what. And so we go to this funeral. I, I meet him at the church. We, we drive in his car, and I, he's showing me how he preps for moments like these. And I'm just learning. And we get there, and... I tell you what, it's a birthday I will never forget because it is humbling to celebrate another year of life while others are mourning the death of a loved one. It was so humbling and profound. And so in that moment, though, I watched. I watched my mentor. I learned from him of how he showed compassion to people. I watched my mentor in, 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 that, in that, that time or in that, that moment 
show love and care to people. I watched how he ministered. Matter of fact, it was through that moment. I was like, man, I want to do that for others. It, it, it just inspired me to love and care for people. Quite honestly, uh, quite honestly, I have learned so much about relational ministry from Derek. And so the funeral is done and we get into the car and, and he sees like my phone blowing up. Text message, notification, notification, text message, phone call, decline, right? Voicemail. And he's like, he looks at me, he chuckles. He's like, man, you're popular today. And I was like, yeah, because it's my birthday, man. And you can just automatically see his, his face like, oh, wow, I am the worst person alive. And uh, he made it up. He took me to a Chinese buffet afterward because he, he knows my heart. And he knows my heart is to go to my stomach, right? And so he took me to a Chinese buffet. But I just, I, I went and I loved it because I longed to be with my mentor today as we close out 2019. My heart is to talk about a message or a topic so, so dear that our, uh, our team, Velocity team, kids team, we've been praying about this for months, and we are so excited. And we're going to talk about leaving a legacy. Now, leaving a legacy is probably the most cliche thing you've ever heard, right? Probably heard it in high school, leave a legacy, college, leave a legacy, right? At home, I don't know if you leave a legacy at home, but, but you hear that so much. And why do I want to talk about leaving a legacy so badly and why I'm going to get super passionate about this message? Because I've been in the culture, I've been in the game to see the culture, and unfortunately there's been a switch, there's been a change that we have substituted legacy for success, we in our culture, unfortunately, have substituted building a legacy, building the next generation for, oh, let me try to build my life. Let me try to get what, what, what I deserve and try to make my life successful. This is so important for us to hear as we close out the year because I'm standing where some of the kids and students are standing, and, I, and I'm so grateful that they love Jesus. I'm so grateful that they're passionate about Jesus, but some of them are doing it on their own. Some of them in our culture, in our schools, what have you, are, are trying to figure out this relationship with Jesus on their own, and they don't have an example anymore. They don't have an example. And my question as we talk about legacy is what will these kids, these students, what will the next generation, how would they live their life as a Christ follower because of how you live yours? Will these young kids, the next generation, will they have a watered down faith because you never lived yours out? Will they have a watered-down uh, uh, view of God? Or will they have a watered-down view of what Matt said, the presence of God, because we don't take it as seriously as we should, because we are leading by example. We really are. And so we're going to talk about leaving a legacy, and I, I, I'm so excited about this. But when I think about legacy, you know what I think about? I think about Michael Jordan. Now, Michael Jordan is the best player to ever play the game. Okay, I don't care if you're in here trying to argue with me. LeBron James is better. Kobe Bryant is better. Definitely not Kawhi Leonard, right? <laughs> not in San Antonio, he's not, all right? <laughs> but I think Michael Jordan was the best to ever play the game. Let me give you some stats. 
Michael Jordan won the NBA uh, the, uh, championship six times. He was also in those championships, the, the finals MVP. In regular season, he was the MVP five times. He was a 10-time scoring champion. He was a three-time steals leader. It, he went to 14 NBA All-Stars, and in those 14, he was the MVP three times. Not just was he a scorer, he, he won Defensive Player of the Year one of those years, and he was a two-time NBA slam dunk champion to add two-time Olympic gold medalist. Now, when you look at these stats, you're like, oh, yeah, Michael Jordan left a legacy, but I, I don't think that was his legacy. I came across an article on Fox Sports that talked about Michael Jordan, and it said this. His legacy, talking about Jordan, isn't that of the league's most illustrious player. His legacy is what the game has become. Jordan not only made the NBA popular again, he turned it global, and it showed no signs of slowing down. Did you catch what his legacy was? It wasn't about the stats. It wasn't about his accomplishments. It wasn't about the numbers. It was about how he changed the game after it, about how he brought excitement to the game. Here's your takeaway. Your legacy is not about your stats. It's about how you set the next guy up. Did you, did you catch that? Your legacy here on this earth is not about your accomplishments, but how this generation responds to how you respond to Jesus. Your, your, your legacy is, is not about all the things that you think is important. It's about creating uh, the next, creating this, this house of God for them to, to be able to worship, for them to bring in the presence of Jesus. Here's the reality. We're getting old. I know people don't like hearing that, okay? I don't like hearing it. But we're getting old. And sooner or later, we have to hand the baton to them. I truly believe if the world is going to change for Jesus, it's going to change in this next generation. Not the next generation, the now generation. The now generation. We need our le legacy to, I want to change the game for them. I want my life to change the game where they're excited to be in the presence of God. I want my life, my legacy to be that they get excited to worship, excited to come to church, that it's not a, a have to, it's a want to. And we see that in Paul's relationship with Timothy. Paul, um, if you would turn with me in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy is, the, is in the New Testament, and it's a letter from Paul to Timothy. It's actually the second letter. That's why they call it 2 Timothy. I know some of you guys are like, that makes sense. Some people think, is that Timothy number two? Did he come afterward? I don't know. So this is Paul's second letter to Timothy, and it was a personal letter to Timothy. And, and, and Paul, what I love about it, if you read the entirety of 2 Timothy, Paul's instructions to Timothy is, hey, stand firm in the faith. If I could sum it up, it's like, hey, stand firm in the faith, Timothy. Why is that so cool? Because Paul didn't just say it, he lived it. Paul didn't just talk about standing firm in the faith, he lived it. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, you therefore, my son, 
Pause, stop right there. Some of you guys, you love when I do that. I love that he says, my son. Now, he's not actually related. Paul's not related, Timothy. It's a spiritual son, which goes to show you that when you actually leave a legacy, when you actually disciple, you create this family bond that no one can break. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Basically, Paul is saying, hey, what I, I want you to do is I want you to see what a legacy looks like. I want you to see what discipleship looked like. Do you, did you guys catch in that verse, if you can put it up, there are four generations of legacies. Four generations, right? First one is this. The things that you, Timothy, have heard from me, Paul, commit these to faithful men. So whatever you've heard from me, now tell it to somebody else, so that they'll be able to teach others. Legacy is reproducing yourself and other people. That's what discipleship is. Can I clarify? Discipleship never stops with you. It doesn't. The reality is disciples make disciples. If you are a disciple of Jesus, naturally you will make more disciples of Jesus. It can't stop with you. It can't. My question, if discipleship has stopped with you or, or someone has poured into you but you haven't poured into anyone else, did you really get anything? Did you get the full gospel? Can you really call yourself a disciple if you've never made disciples? Legacy reproduce itself. Legacy is about who. Legacy is about who. So I want you to ask yourself this question. Who are you pouring into? Who are you discipling? Who are you leaving a legacy in? Now, our natural and common response, if you have kids, should be our children. Our children are the greatest discipleship opportunity. I'm going to say that one more time to beat over our heads. Our children are the greatest discipleship opportunity. Our children I see so many times where we think discipleship is only for the kids pastor. Discipleship is only for the student pastor, for the small group leader. It's our responsibility. You know the numbers are for real, the statistics. I don't know if you heard this number. It's changed over the years, and I've heard it many different ways. But check this. Four out of five students who, used to, who had a relationship with Jesus in, in junior high, high school, whatever, when they go off to college... After one year being college, four out of five of them fall away from their faith. Four out of five children, students fall away from their faith after one year in college. I know this to be true because I was one of them. I was one of them. And if I can give you a clue, if I can give you, if I, if I can sum up the, the, what I have noticed in the last nine years of, of, of leading student ministry here at this church, if I can sum up the, the, the reason and the connection of those who make it from those who don't, quite honestly, I know this is probably more a start. This is not the, 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 all, the, whole, the whole example, or it's not the whole fault, but there's a direct correlation for those who make it, the students that make it, and whether or not their parents have discipled them. 
specifically, even more so, and I'll go even deeper, specifically if their fathers are in their life with discipleship. This is why it's such a big deal for me that fathers will get, get alongside with their, small, their, their kids' small group leaders and help disciple students. Four out of five. We're losing four out of five. I don't know if that syncs with you or not, but as Christians, our, fish, our, 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 our brotherhood, our, our, our Christianity should be growing, not decreasing. That means we're doing something wrong. Four out of five. This is why you see some of our student uh, small group leaders, our kids leaders, always trying to recruit. You might see them in the lobby today trying to recruit you to come serve. We don't want a warm body. We don't want you to just play and have fun with kids. We want disciple makers. We want people that will see this next generation and say, gosh, they're going to do something incredible that my generation could not. We're, 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 I mean, we're passionate about that, but... But it's not just our children. It goes beyond that. See, Jesus poured his life into 12 men. Jesus poured himself into 12 men. And those 12 men, he told them, he commanded them. And that command is still the same for you and I, to go make disciples of all nations. That was his command to us. So it's great, yes, Please disciple your kids. But there are people at your workforce. There are people in your neighborhoods. There are people that that you come in cross with that need Jesus. But not just to be converted. We live in a Christianity that thinks getting them to know Jesus or save is the end goal. No, our goal should be to disciple them, our goal to pour into them so that what God has done in us would be through them now. Guys, I'm so excited. I'm sorry. I'm passionate. But we, we, need, we need to reach people. I'll say this. It's not in my notes. But there are too many eternities at stake. Not lives. There are too many eternities at stake. Legacy is about who, but who leads to what. Once you find out who, it's okay, now what am I going to teach them? What am I going to instill in them? Really practically, I want my kids, I have my son, Keikoa, Leilani, uh, my future son, Ikaika, and who knows how many more kids me and Hannah have? I don't know. We're on a roll here. Uh, but I want my kids to passionately love Jesus. You know how I get them to passionately love Jesus? I have to passionately love Jesus. See, what you want your children or people that you disciple to do needs to happen in you first. See, uh, seven years ago, the Lord put one student on my heart to just pour my life into you. And you already met him, Matthew Rodriguez. When I met him seven years ago, he was an atheist. And I remember I was just like, how do I have a conversation with him? I was like, for me, it's simple. I'm like, dude, it's just God, bro. He's like, but what about the cosmos? I was like, bro, it's just God. You know, it was just, it was a difficult conversation. Uh, but I was like, you know what, I'm just going to spend a lot of time with him and pour my life into him. And no joke, besides my wife, he probably knows me more than anybody. He knows what I think. We joke around that we look alike, we dress alike, we're big and brown. You know, I don't know. <laughs> we joke about that, but, but the reality is because we've just spent so much time 
together. It's going to take time for you to invest into people. It's not glamorous, but it's rewarding. My current mentor, mentor Jeannie Mayo, who's been doing student ministry for like 50 years now. Yes, I said that right. She says this, he who spends the most time wins. He who spends the most time wins. So discipleship through people, uh, of people and discipleship of your kids is going to take a lot of time. There's no quick fix. There's no, hey, swallow this Bible pill that you'll become knowledgeable. They need to see it. We need to see it. I love talking about the four generations because that means someone was discipled by someone else. And so if you're here and, and, you've not, and you're currently not being poured into, that's an indicator for you that someone needs to pour into my life. You either need to join a small group, you need to talk to someone who, uh, that you admire in the Christian faith, and they need to pour into you. Why is that important? Because pouring out to people, yeah, uh, we'll talk about it, it's fun and it's rewarding, but getting poured into is humbling. And we need that. We need people. I always laugh when I talk to people who don't go to church that are Christians, and they're like, oh, I don't need the church. The church is not a building. I was like, you're right. It's not just a building. It's a people. And this whole thing is a relational book. And so it's so important that you get discipled as well. 2 Timothy 2, 2 continues in verse 3. This is Paul saying, hey, Timothy, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he, he is not crowned unless the, he competes according to the rules. Paul tells Timothy and us as followers follow, uh, that, that we're going to endure hardship. I looked at the word endure. It means to suffer patiently. That's awesome, right? Sign me up. But I love that Paul says this to Timothy. Why? Because Paul has lived it. He didn't say, hey, you're going to endure hardships, but I, I never have. He sets the expectations. It's so countercultural for what we talk about today. It's almost like when we say, hey, you should come to know Jesus because once you know Jesus, everything's going to be butterflies and unicorns. It's not. We're going to endure hardships. But Paul didn't just say it with his words or ideas or philosophies. He lived it. But I think before he lived it, he saw it. See, in Acts chapter 7, uh, we've got this, the story of Stephen. How many of you guys heard of Stephen? The first martyred Christian. Now, I've read that story so many times, and, and Stephen giving his address to people, and then, then the people get angry. But what, what's cool at the very end, it was an epiphany to me. And so it says this in Matthew, or Acts 7, verse 56. Says and, and said, this is Stephen saying, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Check this. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The same Saul who became Paul 
who's writing to Timothy. The same Saul that when encountered Jesus became Paul and wrote most of the New Testament. This same Saul that became Paul that we look at and say, man, what incredible follower of Jesus was at the death, at the persecution of Stephen. Now, many people will say, oh, that's when he got inspired to persecute Christians. No, I look at big picture. I think Paul, Saul at the time, knew what it meant to live for Jesus before he even knew Jesus. Before he even encountered Christ, he saw what it meant to live with him. He persecuted Christians, and he saw Christians that would die for their faith. So guess what? When Paul gets converted, when he becomes a Christian, does he expect anything less? No. He's not going to be like, oh, why am I getting persecuted, Lord? Why is this happening? No, he knows that 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 is an expectation. Why? Because legacy is caught, not taught. Legacy is caught, not taught. Discipleship is caught, not taught. He's not teaching from an ideology. He's experienced it, he saw it, and he knows that if he saw it and he experienced it, that those who he leads will experience it as well. Legacy is caught, not taught. See, my son, so awesome, he's two years old now and just a bundle of joy. It's scary, parents. Y'all never told me that kids become like you uh, and haunt you, right? But he's become so much like me, it's, it's fun and terrifying. Uh, but I, I remember one morning, I'm, I'm at my, I woke up early, go to my kitchen, and I start doing uh, my devotions. And I hear my son wake up and open up his door. Now, usually my son, when he opens up his door, he wakes up, he'll go into our room, jump on our bed, wake us up, like, chill, bro. Um, or... He will go into the living room and start playing with his toys. I think for him it's like, they're asleep, I get extra time. And so this time, though, he gets out of his, uh, his room, he wakes up, he opens up the door, and you hear, we need WD-40. Um, so he opens up the door, he walks into the living room and sees me. And immediately he sees me, he turns around and walks back to his room. I was like, oh, what did he do? You know, automatic, what did he do? He's walking back to his room. He comes back out of his room, he's walking towards me, and he has a Paw Patrol book. He hasn't said a word to me yet. He gets in the kitchen, sits on his sister's chair, which is way too small for him. And again, he hasn't talked to me, and he starts flipping through the pages. And I had to take this picture because I thought it was super cute. But what was he doing? He was imitating his father. Yeah, he wasn't reading some spiritual, theological, he wasn't any reading, translating Hebrew at the time, you know. It wasn't anything spiritual, but he caught what it meant to have a devotional life because he saw his daddy doing it. I know this to be true because my father, growing up, had probably the strongest to this day, I think, one of the most powerful prayer lives. He calls it quiet time, but he is so loud when he prays. But I remember even, I mean, growing up, even to this day, he locks himself in his room, 
tells us, hey, I'm going to have my time with the Lord. Don't interrupt me. And hours, you just hear him praying, shouting loud. And then when we moved, I saw something that was so precious to me. When we moved, there was a giant box of just old school spiral notebooks. And in there was written in cursive. We don't even know what cursive is nowadays, right? He's written cursive of just encounters that he had with the Lord, his quiet time. You know, to this day, I, I, I don't recall my dad ever telling me to pray. I don't recall my dad ever telling me, hey, you should, you should read your Bible. I never, I, I don't have one instance where he instructed me to do that. But I saw the necessity that he had in his life for the Lord, and so I want it. Legacy is caught, not taught. And so... The most important thing that we need to understand is it's, it's time to reprioritize what it means to leave a legacy. See, it's not about the success, adults. It's not about the success in life. It's not about the money that you make. It's not about the house or the car that you buy. It's not about the hobbies. Those things are good in life and you can strive for them, but those are just stats. Kids, students, it's not about the amount of baskets or goals that you make. It's not about the popularity on your, your athletic team or whatever. It's not about the amount of likes, the amount of retweets, the amount of friends you have on Facebook. And I'm saying that to kids and students. Some adults need to hear this too. It's not about that popularity. Those things are great. But our biggest fear is that we succeed in the things that really don't matter. Our biggest fear is we succeed in the things that really don't matter. What do I mean by that? One day we will stand before Jesus and he will say, hey, what have you done with your life? And I'd hate for us to stand before him and say, hey, well, God, I was very successful. God, I made all this money. God, I bought this nice house. You should have seen the house. God, I, I, I became really popular on my, my, my school or my team or whatever. And I feel like God's response would be, well, how did you use it? I'm, I, I imagine God saying, well, good job with the success, but how did you use it? Good job with the money, but did you give to the poor? Did you give to missions? Hey, great, great job with buying a house. Who have you invited in that house? Who has been around your family? Who have you discipled in that house? I'm glad you got the popularity and, and people like you and know you, but how did you influence them? See, I have, a, I have a, in my office, I have like this mini ladder as a reminder for me. And on that ladder, it says this quote, and I hope you, you hear it. It's sad as the story of the man who climbed the ladder of success only to get to the top and realize that he had leaned his ladder against the wrong wall. Sad is us that we are climbing a ladder of what we think is most important to get to the end of our life and realize it really didn't matter. Can you imagine though? Can you imagine if you took your life, made a switch today to be more purposeful with the things that God has entrusted you with and do that for the kingdom? Can you imagine if everyone in here, all parents, all fathers, all mothers, discipled their children, like intentionally, not just bring them somewhere? Can you imagine if everyone in here reached one soul and discipled them and those people reached one soul, 
gosh, we'll see, we'll see revival happen like that if we would take responsibility. I mean, it'd just be crazy to see. Legacies don't happen accidentally. They take intentionality. See, Timothy saw Paul. Paul saw Stephen. Stephen saw the apostles, and the apostles saw Jesus. What if our legacy of how we lived our life traces back all the way to Jesus? What if our lives look so much like Jesus because we're being poured into but also pouring out? What if this year, I know we're talking about the new year is coming up here, but what if this new year you didn't make a resolution to just lose weight? I'm in that club, right? I'm trying to lose weight. But what, what if you're not just making a resolution to, to lose weight or, or to, to pay off a, a bill? What if your resolution was this year I'm going to intentionally pour myself into people? Can you imagine what that would look like? Can you imagine what this room would look like? Forget the room. Can you imagine what Christianity would look like? I'll say, gosh, they maybe really believe that Jesus is alive. Proverbs 13, 22 says this, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. 